This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in-depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Hello again, everybody. This is the Mike Francesa Podcast on uh, after a busy weekend. We'll get to some emails in a little while, but first, of course, the headline story, and it will be for as long as they go, uh, the Rangers, uh, you could say, had a chance yesterday to go up three zip. Now, listen, nobody expected them to go down to Tampa and, and automatically win that game. Nobody expected them to be up three uh, zip on a team that's won back-to-back Stanley Cups. So, And although they are missing maybe their best all-around player or someone on that level in point, uh, you know Tampa is going to be good. You know the goalie's going to get better, and he was yesterday. And you know they're going to make plays when they have to make plays, and they did yesterday. Uh, The amazing thing was the Rangers got the lead, and you thought, all right, now they can take this home. And then as we're all getting ready to prepare for overtime, you get hit with the game-winning goal. So it was uh, a little tough to take from that standpoint. You would have liked to see the game get to overtime where anything can happen. But uh, the bottom line is the Rangers, I think, despite the injury to Strom, I think are still the stronger team of the two from what I've seen. I think they're the better team. Even yesterday, I thought they had plenty of chances. They took, if they hadn't... uh, really let let things get away from them in the third period, which they did. They probably weren't very happy with their level of play in the third period. And except for the shaky penalties, they could have, you know, easily won that game yesterday. Uh, and it tells you that they're still in very good shape to either get the fourth game or still win this thing uh, going down the line. So I, I think that... You can be very, very positive about where the Rangers are right now. Um, you don't want to lose any players at this point, obviously. You don't want to lose a, a, a guy who does as much as Strom does, but it doesn't sound good for him. Uh, but remember, they're still missing one of their best players, and as long as the goalie plays well, and he did, and their goalie picked it up, which you knew he would, uh, this thing is where you you got to be very content. You, know, you try to see if you can get a 3-1 lead and come back and win this in five, not push this into the sixth and seventh game. But this series is probably destined to go into the sixth and seventh game. It just probably is. But uh, you have to like very much where the Rangers are right now. And even from a standpoint of losing that game, they still had a chance to win. And that's all you can ask for. They had a chance to be up three zip in this series, and they still are in a solid position as we get ready for game number four. It was a big weekend for the Mets. Remember, the Mets lose the first two games of the series and are down 4-1 in game three. And you're thinking, boy, this could be a nightmare four-game set in Dodger Stadium. And the Mets come back and rally and win game three and then come from behind in game four 
and wind up getting out of L.A. with a split in the series. And this split might be as important as anything the Mets have done because it showed you something about this Mets team. It showed you this Mets team can play with the best. And nationally, the Dodgers are the best. And show you that they can compete on this level. And it was a very telling weekend, I thought, that they go back and get games three and four after losing and not hitting at all in games one and two of the series. Now, Alonzo's having an MVP season. I mean, we know he loves Dodger Stadium, but he is having an I mean, with 16 home runs and 54 RBIs. And as tough as we've been on Lindor, he does have 45 RBIs. The Mets have a 1-2 RBI punch that nobody else has in baseball right now. These guys have 100 RBIs between them already. I mean, Lindor has 45 RBIs. He's got more RBIs than Judge has. So you can't, you can't knock him when he's got 45 RBIs in a third of a season. And as far as Alonzo, you're seeing a consistency from him. You're seeing a clutch from him. You're seeing a leadership level from him that you have to love. I mean, he is acting like an MVP bat in the middle of that lineup. Big hit after big hit. You look over the last 15 games, he's got 18 RBIs. Look over the last 30 games, he's got 33 RBIs. A consistent level. And there's nothing bigger. Forget home runs. There's nothing bigger than someone who knocks in run after run. And he right now has 54 RBIs to lead the major leagues. The most interesting thing was the use of Diaz. Buck went to him in the eighth inning. The question you have now is, does Buck get to the point, as Joe used to do with Mariano, in key games, only in key regular season games, few and far between, but in postseason games, is the two-inning save something that's in his future? Diaz was pushing for it. They didn't go to it. But is the two-inning save something that they believe Diaz can do? That's the next step for Diaz. Mariano was always capable of the multiple inning save in the big spot in the postseason. You don't want to push that in the regular season. You save it for big spots because you don't want to wear your guy out. And I expect the Mets to go out. And the biggest acquisition they will probably make in the second half of the season will be a guy to dominate the eighth inning. They can get somebody's closer who somebody's looking to deal off a bad team or for a team that's disappointed. And they get him and lock him in the eighth inning and have Diaz in the ninth. I expect the Mets to do that. Just like I expect them to go out and get another bat, but I think they want to see what Escobar is going to do first. They have time on that. They can wait to the end of July to get that bat. They don't have to rush. And there's going to be plenty of them available to them. So they're going to get the bat they need. They're going to get that guy to lock down the eighth inning, a guy who is a closer right now who probably will be brought in to lock down that eighth inning. And the Mets continue to be in very, very good, in a very good spot. Coming back and making the statement they made in Dodger Stadium as they get ready to play the Padres. 
As for the Yankees, let's be honest, the Tigers were no match. And even when the Yankees didn't hit, the Tigers were there to gift wrap a game for them with their terrible defense. So, I mean, the amazing thing about the Yankees is with this incredible amount of winning and this very gaudy record, you can look at the pitching and say, my God, the starting pitching has been insane that it can't continue. I mean, how could it continue? You want to see, you expect five guys to throw like that? You expect every one of them to have an ERA either in the low threes or below? Not likely. But the offense is going to pick up. The Yankees have a lot of guys. This side of Judge who's having an MVP season, they have a lot of guys who can pick up their offense, and they have some guys who are having nightmares with their offense. I mean, Gallo finally gets a home run, but Gallo's been a disaster. Hicks has been just as bad. I thought they gave... Mickey, the, the short shift, but, you know, he offers them easy access to making roster moves. I understand Mickey being upset. I'd be upset, too, if I was Mickey. I want to see them give Mickey a chance. I think if they give Mickey a chance, he will be one of their answers offensively. He's a good bat. If you can live with him defensively, and it looks like you can in left field, he is a good bat. He's a natural hitter. You just have to give him at bats. They only gave him 40 at bats. And he looked a lot better than Gallo. I know Gallo's going to fall into a home run now and again. I mean, he's got six homers, but he's got nine RBIs. He's also going to strike out 30% of the time and look terrible at the plate most of the time. But the Yankees, with all their incredible performances so far in terms of wins and losses. Their offense hasn't been great. They got a lot of hitters who can do a lot better. And, and there's spots where you can see them improving the team. But the pitching has been, let's be honest, I mean, it's been unbelievable. It's been just remarkable what some of these guys have done. Led, of course, by having a guy come out of nowhere to be a Cy Young leader and having a guy in the bullpen step in and do just an incredible job. So the Yankees are, you know, cutting a path. I don't, I don't buy into this thing yet, though, that this Yankee team can be one of the great teams of all time. I don't buy into that stuff. I don't see this team as being that good. I understand the pitching has been insane right now. If that keeps up, you can say anything you want. But I don't expect them to continue to pitch on this level because I don't think anybody could. And I don't think overall the team is that good. I mean, I look at the lineup and I don't, I, I'm not overly impressed at times. And there's some guys in the lineup I just don't like. So I don't see greatness cloaked. I don't see this team cloaked in greatness. I think it's gotten off to a, you know, insane start. It's done everything that you could ask it to do. I mean, but think about it. The Dodgers have knocked their club sometimes this year, and their run differential is still better than the Yankees. And they haven't been happy with certain things. So while here we are on the East Coast calling the Yankees maybe one of the great teams ever, or possibly they could become one of the great teams ever, the Dodgers have a better run differential right now than they do. 
and they're not even happy with some things on their team. So it just shows your perspective. To the NBA. I told you before the series started, it would be all about shooting the three and defending the three. And that is what it is all about, folks. That is what decides these games. Celtics make threes. Golden State's in trouble. But you see pronounced things for both teams as they take the scene back to Boston, 1-1. Golden State dominated as expected in game two. Their wicked third quarter. An historic third quarter. And then obviously the fourth quarter was garbage time. But the Celtics got their win in, in 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 Golden State, they got their win on the on the left coast. Now they go back one one. For Boston, the clear weakness is their ability to handle the ball. They cannot turn the ball over because those transitions are nightmares. Not, are a nightmarish way to fuel that Golden State offense. You cannot turn the ball over against them, and the Celtics continue to turn the ball over. But Golden State's weaknesses run deeper. Their defense is not good, and their defense, especially against the three, is not good. They've got to improve their defense, and they've got to get more consistency out of Thompson. They have to. Right now, Golden State is at a loss whenever they take Curry off the floor. You can feel it when they take Curry off the floor. It's palpable when they take Curry off the floor. They're still settling into this series, though, because they both can use a lot of different players. Celtics can use just a myriad of different players, but even Golden State can use some different players, and what's going to happen game to game is going to be very interesting with those players and how those players, three through seven on both teams, how they perform. With the Celtics, you could almost say three through nine. But with Golden State, it's about... Defending the three against Boston. You cannot give them wide open threes, and they've given them a ton of them. Celtics shot 50% three in game one. They made 21 threes. Last night, they make 15 threes for the two games. They've made 36 threes and shot 46% from three. That is not winning numbers for Golden State. Golden State does not go into a series expecting to get outshot from three, and in this series, they're getting outshot from three because the Celtics' defense is much better than Golden State's is. Golden State's defense at time is atrocious. And they have got to get Golden State has got to get their former star back to where they can be at least believing that Clay Thompson can be himself. He, he's not the player he was before the injury, that's clear. But when he has a big night, then you know what? Golden State's not losing. When he has that... 30-point night, which he has had a couple of times in the postseason. He had it once against Memphis. He had it against Dallas. They're winning those games. 
Because Curry's going to get his points every night. You know that going in. So for Boston, it's turnovers. For Golden State, it's defense and Thompson's consistency. And game to game, the focus chains on the role players. It really does. And I think, listen, Boston's been very good on the road. They have not been good at home. Golden State's able to win anywhere. I think this series, as I did from the start, is a dead-even series that's going seven games. I picked Golden State only because they had the seventh game at home, and they had the more experienced guys as far as the finals. That's the only reason I picked them. I thought it was a hair between the two teams, but I picked Golden State in seven, and I still think we're headed there. Later this week, we have the Belmont Stakes coming up, so we'll do that with Brad. Next week, of course, you have the U.S. Open. We're a week away from that. Horschel wins Jack's tournament yesterday. We have the U.S. Open. We also have this budding nightmare for the PGA, which we'll get to, because the future and the face of professional golf is really being challenged right now in a very big way, and that's going to be a major, major storyline in the weeks to come as these players decide whether they're going to run for the big money that's going to be flashed at them. As you've already seen some guys commit to. How they handle it. How the PGA deals with this. Is going to set up golf for the next two to five years. So it's a very, very big story that is budding as we head towards the U.S. Open. So we'll get into that some too. And obviously, as we head to June, we have a chance to still have some very, very dramatic games at the Garden. The fact that the Garden's alive right now brings back wonderful memories because there's nothing better in the spring than to have Madison Square Garden just pulsating as it is right now. It's been many, many years since it has. The Rangers had that run a couple of years ago, went to the Stanley Cup Finals, not that many years ago. And obviously, when they got to the final, they, got, they ran into a, a hot goalie. They also ran into a better team. Now, Colorado's sitting there waiting. Let's see if the Rangers can get there to meet them and then see if they can, probably as an underdog, get themselves the first cup in what is now a pretty long time. You know, everyone waited for that cup forever. And then it finally came in 94. But 94, believe it or not, because it was one of the great years that we ever had a fan, 94 is a long time ago. Great memories. An incredible spring. Amazing memories. Probably the high, highlight of all the years that I spent at FAN, and I spent almost 35 years there, was that year, that spring, where we were a part of playoff games well into the late June, night after night after night. And we were at 
remember we recounted it once, somewhere around 35 live games that spring. We were in Vancouver for multiple games. We were in Houston. We were in on the road with uh, Indiana. I mean, so we... We spent, and we did every game at the Garden. So we were there for so many big days and nights at the Garden. And it's special when you get to this point as summer's really here and the Garden is still alive. It hasn't happened many times in the last 20 years, so it's really something special when it does happen. And it really is big for our city when it does happen. And we're looking at we're looking at a very, very promising, maybe even a special baseball season, the way things are going right now. I mean, to have the two teams right now among the three best teams in all of baseball and have them dominating the way, and that's what they are. They're dominating right now, both of them. It could mean some very, very big things come October. Emails when we return. You're listening to the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. You can get the Mike Francesa Podcast at betrivers.com. And remember, for all your uh, wagering needs, it's Bet rivers.com go to the bet rivers app they have everything you need and as you go through this baseball season run through this postseason with the rangers get ready for things like the u.s open uh bet rivers is there so go to BetRivers.com, and also you can get the podcast at apple and spotify and all the places where you get your podcasts Mike Francis, a podcast at gmail.com for emails or comments. Danny from Huawei starts us off. What are your thoughts on trading Torres? Is there any way he could be used to acquire someone like Ben Attendee from Kansas City? You know, I've always liked Ben Attendee a lot. I thought he would be a nice fit for the Yankees. I like the Orioles center fielder too in Mullins, but he hasn't had a great year, but I still like him a lot too. I think he'd be a great fit batting leadoff for the Yankees. Um, Torres could be used in a variety of ways. The one thing about him is he's better at second base than he ever was at shortstop. Shortstop was a nightmare. He doesn't have to deal with that now. And he is a guy that you trust in the clutch. He does get big hits late in games. That's one thing he does do. He hasn't been overpowering this year. I mean, listen, he's not having a bad year. He can have a better year, but he still is a clutch player. So it's, it's not like he doesn't have value. He does. But no longer do you look at him as a guy who has to be here. I think that's the difference. I think that's what's changed in the last two years. No longer do you think he has to be here. But I think the odds are he will be here. Matt and Huntington, what do you feel will be the long-term ramifications uh, well, this is the golf question to, to DJ playing in the uh, golf event. Also with the major star like this, potentially jeopardizing his status on the PGA tour. Do you see the rival as a legit threat to the PGA? I think 
this story will be one of the biggest stories in sports going forward. This is not just about a Greg Norman late in his life causing trouble or a Phil Mickelson making a huge money grab in his 50s, both of which are a part of this. I mean, the talk is that Phil received an incredible amount of money from these people, $200 million. Um, And DJ supposedly got a very handsome chunk of money also. This is a real threat because it's very big money. And it is going to impact the PGA in a very big way. The question is, how does the PGA deal with this? Do they deal with this on direct economic terms and make it hard for the U.S. stars in their prime? They can't do anything about this. Sergio Garcia's or the Poulter's or the Lee Westwood's or the Louis Oosterhuizen's. They can't do anything about those guys who are later in their career and international players. They're going to run for that money. And so be it. You're not going to be dead if they leave the PGA Tour. But if you start losing Dustin Johnson, if you start losing even Ricky Fowler, if you start losing anybody else, a Cantley or a, uh, you know, whoever might go, I'm just picking a guy, a top 10 player. How you decide to threaten him? Do you make an economic? Do you make it hard for him to play there by saying, "Hey, we're going to look at the dates that they're going to challenge the PGA schedule, and we're going to make it very difficult for you not to be playing in that PGA event"? Or do they just say, "We're going to ban you"? If they ban them, they're going to lose the lawsuit. I don't think there's any question they're going to lose that lawsuit. It might take a while to settle it, but they're going to lose that lawsuit. And they're going to lose a lot of money. So the PGA's control and how they deal with this, deal with this rival challenge, is a big deal. Because this is a real threat. And let me tell you this. These guys, with the amount of golf courses out there, and these guys having the kind of money they have, they are a serious threat. Because all you need to put on a big event is money and a golf course. You'll get the TV coverage at this time of year. There's nothing else on in this quarter. In the football season, when leagues try to challenge the NFL, they don't have TV availability. They don't have stadiums they can play in, and they don't have players. It doesn't work. In golf, the challenge could be very different and very real, and this is a serious and could be telling challenge for the PGA. This is from John. Assuming health, which is always a question mark, and give the strength of all five members of the rotation, could you see the Yankees moving Severino into the bullpen for a postseason run? Um, one of the starters is going to go to the pen. Let's, it's crazy to say who it is now. You don't need five starters in the postseason. So one of the starters is going to wind up in the pen. It's going to be based on merit, and it's also going to be based on who brings the most ability to pitch the single inning or get the one or two innings that you need to win a game and who can warm up, who can get ready quickly, who adapts best to that talent-wise. 
It also will be done on a merit system. So that's a tough question to answer in early June. We'd be much easier. It'd be much easier to answer that question late in September. And there are more than one choice for that role. But you're right. There's not going to be five starters in the postseason. You don't need it. And our, this is from Lee. Andahar requested a trade following his option, uh, you know, his option back to AAA. I get that he was only, uh, the move was they had a customer. For Andahar, I get his frustration. So do I. Okay? So do I. I think the Yankees have found something in Carpenter they didn't expect. He's given them some early returns. But I think the Yankees deserve to give Andahar a chance, and they never have fallen on a better opportunity to do it. They have a big lead. They're playing great baseball. They're getting great pitching. And you have two guys in the outfield not carrying their weight. I thought it was a perfect time to give Andahar a time. I would have dumped Gallo. I don't like Gallo here. I don't want Gallo here. I don't think he's going to be a big fit. But Cash, I think, is still trying to justify that trade. There's two things about this. He's trying to justify that trade, and he loves Hicks. So that's why Andahar wound up. And I understand he was unhappy. I think he had a right to be unhappy. And I, I think he will either get a chance this year or he won't be a Yankee in the future because there's a lot of teams, a lot of bad teams, that Andahar could start for, a lot of them. This is from Joe P. Uh, I go to Belmont a bunch, and it is such a nice afternoon. What do you think the Naira can do to increase attendance, or is it just the fact that Belmont Six is the only day there will be a crowd? The, Joe, racing has become a sport that is as much part of your video presentation as anything else. Basically, they're running the races so that you can bet on them and you can carry the signal anywhere. You can watch it on your iPhone. You can watch it at home. You can bet at home. Once you could bet at home on the races live, the day of the racetrack being crowded was over. And you will not have people at Belmont or any other track on a daily basis in America unless it is a special situation like Saratoga, which is a destination resort. And people go there to vacation. And they go there because it's a great experience and they draw every day. But remember, it's only open from late, you know, the middle of July until Labor Day. And people look at it as a special event. And even their cars have suffered. But Belmont will draw people. And let me tell you, if you like racing, and I'm not doing this uh, because Belmont asked me to do it or they're good to me, but they are good to me. And, you know, I have a relationship with them. I have for many years, uh, you know, the, with the New York Racing Association. But let me say this. If you like racing, the Belmont Stakes has no significance this year in terms of anything historic. It should be a very good race. The Derby win is going to be there. There's going to be a very, it's going to be a very good field. It's going to be a much better field than the Preakness was. And it is an incredible card. I mean, you will never get to go and see this many grade one races in one place at one time. I mean, they basically put all their grade one races for a month on one day. It's an incredible card. Even a race like the Jiper, which 
Casa Creed, all Casa Creed that I uh, that uh, we own with Lee Einsleider. Uh, that horse, uh, who won the Jaipur last year, is back this year. He's six years old. He's been a great horse. He's won over a million dollars. He'll be the favorite, I think, in the Jaipur. And the Jaipur's a terrific race. I mean, there's terrific race after terrific race. So if you like racing, it's an incredible card. And it's a great day out. And there won't be a huge crowd this year. You'll probably get fifty or 60,000 tops, which is a nice day at the races. And not like it's there when there's 100,000, which can be very tough to deal with. But as far as is there going to be other days where the place is jammed, there'll be a decent crowd on Friday because you have to buy the Belmont tickets. You buy Friday's tickets with Saturday. So Friday is a good card, and there'll be 15,000 there on Friday, and there'll be 50 or 60,000 there on Saturday. Friday card's a good card, too, if you can go. The Saturday card's a great card. But there won't be a crowd there any other day. Even 4th of July weekend, they put, they put some good racing on. There still won't be more than a couple thousand there. It's just the way it is. It's the way racing works now. Except for Saratoga where, you know what? They're going to draw 15,000 in July on a weekday. They're going to draw 20,000 in August on a weekday. And they're going to draw thirty to 50,000 on the weekends. That's the way Saratoga works. Send your emails and your questions, your comments to Podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you later in the week. Thanks for listening to the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Hey, it's Mike Miss here. What a time to be a Philly sports fan, and you can share the excitement with me each week on the Mike Missinelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Listen and subscribe to the Mike Missinelli Podcast today, wherever you get your podcasts.